lots to come up, or lots coming up on the program, but we want to start to talking about this rapid test and why we're seeing countries around the world using the tests and here in Canada, still waiting for those approvals by Health Canada. Let's bring in Jason Tetro. He is the host of the Super Awesome Science Show, and he is on the line with us right now. Good afternoon to you. Hello there. Uh, first, I should say congratulations, because I understand that season two of the show debuts today. Uh, yes, the uh, Super Awesome Science Show is back, and believe it or not, our first episode happens to be something everybody seems to be wanting to talk about, the second wave. So if you want to know anything about the second wave or have any questions about where it's going, you can listen to the show, and also you can leave me an actual message or a question, and I'll be happy to answer it for you. Oh, I have a question about second wave. I'm glad you brought that up, because there seems to be so, it seems to be some confusion over the definition of second wave. Is it when we see the spikes? <laughs> again? Is it when there's a vaccine? There's a lot of different interpretations of that phrase. Yeah, and so when we talk about a second wave, traditionally, we're talking about the virus goes away. And we all think, yay, we got rid of it. And believe me, BC was really close to this. (laughs) And then all of a sudden it comes back and it starts raging. So the closest to a second wave would actually be what's happening in British Columbia. But really what's happened is that For the most part, since we didn't get rid of it, we didn't eliminate it from our soils, then it's essentially another surge. And you can have three, four, five, however many surges um, based on how many people actually go, ooh, and then retreat and then think, oh, okay, well, it's okay now, and then head back out. We need to have full calm first, and then when it comes back, that's a true second wave. So when we were down to the single-digit cases per day, that would have, even though based on the testing, there were likely more cases. But when we were down to those numbers, that now coming back from that, that's that can be classified a second wave? It's close. Um, and the reason is, is remember when we were actually at that point where we were having single cases and we were asking the experts, have we eliminated the virus from British Columbia? And Dr. Henry was saying, no, it's still here. It's still circulating. You see, we have to eliminate it from the soil in order for it to have that point where we can say we've come, you know, we've conquered it, we've gotten past it. And then all of a sudden it comes back. And because we're so complacent because we think we've won, then it starts to come and it creates a much larger problem than the first wave ever did. Which is what we're seeing in Quebec now with the red zones and the closures of a lot of the services and places that had reopened. Yeah, and so when you have that kind of situation, um, whether it's a wave or a surge or whatever you want to call it, what it's essentially showing you is that whatever was put in place to try and make it work didn't actually get believed People were just simply doing it because they were told to do it. And unfortunately, when it looked like the case numbers were going down and everybody was coming back to normal, they all just went back and did what they would do on a regular basis. And of course, you can't do that when you have a you know, free-floating pandemic running around. And that's essentially what's going on in, in Quebec and to some extent in Ontario as well. Uh, let's talk a bit about uh, the idea of rapid testing because that is something that uh, a lot of people are questioning. Canada has purchased almost 8 million of these tests. They're not mm-hmm. approved, though, but yet by Health Canada. And there's some uh, some accusations that Health Canada maybe is, is or the federal government is dragging its heels. 
well, I actually have experience in doing this for different types of uh, viral diagnostics. And let me tell you something. The reason that it's taking what it seems to be a long time is that there's a stage, a middle stage. It's what we call the for research purposes only stage. And anybody who's out there who knows what I just said, you, you're probably nodding your head. It means that we're testing it in the environment without actually um, sort of registering the results to be used officially, okay? Mm -hmm. The problem is, is that because of COVID and it's a pandemic, everybody wants any kind of test result to be now and used officially. And you can't really do that when you don't have full approval or you haven't gone through this testing. So that's where we are right now. So in, a sen in essence, what we're seeing is in the United States, they have this emergency use authorization. And what you see with the kit, this particular ID now that the, the government has just bought, it says, if you have a false negative, which is the big problem, then you have to go and find another test and do that before you can call it a negative. So in other words, you have to run two tests before you can actually have a confirmation. But we all want it in that one test. So we're in that what we call that research purposes only stage. And when we finally get to a point where we have the you know, we can be sure that every single test that we do is going to be accurate, then we can get that approval and then we can run to the races. How would you know if it's a false negative? So what, well, the thing is, is that you don't at this point. What we do is what we call a proficiency test. And that means that you go and you put the test out in all sorts of different places all over this, all over the country. And then you get people to get tested by two different methods, one that's already known to work, and then this particular test. And as soon as everything is matching to about 95 to 97%, then you probably are at a point where you can say, okay, we're getting close or, or we can get approval. None of that is happening at the moment because everybody wants a test now. So we need people to be patient while we go through this. And then when we finally are at the stage where the ID now is matching the negatives and positives of what we already know works, essentially what's running out of uh, Winnipeg, then we're going to be able to say, okay, you can go for it. And remember, the same thing has happened when it comes to the saliva test that came out of British Columbia. It's just that it was done in a smaller environment, a smaller location, and with people who have already had experience in this. So it became uh, approved much faster than, say, something from Abbott. And maybe that's what's causing some of the, the frustration is people are seeing this or hearing about uh, my friend's daughter got the saliva test and she didn't have the virus. But people are seeing this used in the school settings. I'm wondering, well, why can't we have it widespread? Yeah. And so with the saliva test, it's really coming down to the fact that because it is a small group that has done this, and um, I actually have met David Goldfarb years and years and years ago. I don't even know if he remembers me, but he's amazing. Um, and, and the thing is, is that when you come from something so small, you can only create small batches, right? It's not like you can upscale this um, overnight. So it's going to take some time before they're able to upscale this particular test in order to be used efficiently. Now, what's going to be interesting is, are we going to basically have the equivalent of a pregnancy test, which is really the ultimate goal? I was trying to develop these for tuberculosis back in the day. And that way, you just essentially do a small saliva test, and you get a dot or a line, and that tells you if you're positive or negative. We're not there yet, but it looks like we're heading in that direction, and BC seems to be taking the lead. If you have a question about rapid testing for COVID-19, about the second wave, anything really on your mind, Jason Tetro, who is the host of the Super Awesome Science Show, which is debuting season two today, is our guest today and here to answer any of those questions. Let's go to Bob on the line. Bob, what's your question? 
my question is a bit of a concern. What if it is technically impossible for us to achieve what would we consider a, a fully accurate rapid test? Remember that cube thing that came out? It, it did well in the lab. It, they forgot uh, what shape the swab had to be, for example, to reach the actual sample site. Uh, so that failed due to that. And it seems if you're using another source like saliva or something like that, so are we prepared for the possibility that a, a quick test may be uh, technically unfeasible, like this little piece of RNA ain't going let to let us have it that way, if you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, no, and I totally understand what you're saying. And believe me, every single time we've gone through this, whether it be HIV, hepatitis C virus, uh, I, those are the ones that I've gone through, um, tuberculosis, we go through this every single time. We sit there and we just look at the paper and we're like, what if we can't make this happen? But eventually we do. So we are, may, not, may not get that 100, 100%, but we may probably get to about a 95 to a 99%. And then what will happen is that we may have to use that secondary test very infrequently, but that's what essentially what we call the reference testing. And uh, I, I really think we're going to have something that's going to be useful at the home, at a point of care, uh, and, and we won't have to worry too much about the reference. It's just going to take a little bit more time. Do you see it being a game changer that if and when that test is developed, is it going to change things like traveling in that it could replace quarantine and, and would be able to open up uh, things if we're, sudden, if we're comfortable with the you know you're going to be tested constantly depending on where you go? Yeah, so not only is the speed going to be an issue, it's also going to be the cost because essentially we're just, you know, spending like mad right now, but there is going to come a point where, you know, uh, airports or, or hospitals or whatever are going to have to look at their budgets in order to be able to bring these in. So whether it's the ID now from Abbott, whether it's um, a, another type of cube that's coming out, uh, or if it's a saliva test that looks like a pregnancy test, if it can come down in price to a point where it's very easy to use and it's very inexpensive, then I think we're going to be able to do that. Until then, you may still end up having a laser pointed at your forehead. Uh, and do you think, is it different now, again, when we're talking about second wave and the surge in cases, it does seem different in the demographics. In when we were in the first wave, it was people who were older. Uh, it was people who were being put on ventilators. And there was this concern. I mean, the hospitals were emptied out. We were talking about building field hospitals. Mm -hmm. Is it different now because the demographic is younger? Yeah, so we've essentially gone from what was essentially a J curve. In other words, it was very, very low for all, most of the age groups and very high in terms of elderly. We've now gone to what looks more like a W curve, where you essentially have that bump in between the 20 to 40 age group. Now, the thing is that we're still learning about how our immune system works uh, to sort of defend against this virus. And it does seem as if any kind of prior exposure to another type of coronavirus may give us a little bit more of a chance. It's kind of like, remember when uh, pandemic influenza was around and the people who lived in 1918 had immunity? It's kind of along those same lines. But the thing is that we're not absolutely sure about it, and it's not for everybody. So although we are seeing that greater demographic in the 20 to 40, we're probably seeing less hospitalizations and less deaths now. But as we start to get more and more and more cases, sort of those, those um, outliers or, or people who essentially don't have the proper immune system are going to start showing up in hospitals and going to show up, unfortunately, in our vital statistics. And we're already starting to see that in the States. We're starting to see that in some places in Canada. And I fear that's going to happen in BC as well.
Hmm. As we learn more about this, though, and about the virus and develop strategies to fight it, do you think we will learn more? You kind of touched on this, but but there has been speculation. There have been some studies into why kids especially seem to be more immune to this. Could it be because of the newer vaccines that they've been given that older people weren't? I think it has to do with a combination of um, how children uh, are affected by the virus because remember the virus has to go through a particular protein in our bodies it's called the ace2 and children really don't produce a heck of a lot of that so that's one aspect of it but also because children are still developing their immune systems they may actually have the ability to rapidly create an immune response against this particular virus so the vaccination is really good in the sense that it's helping to train the immune system to know what to do Um, and then when you have that exposure it may be such that it's not going to lead to a severe infection but it will lead to an enough of a of a viral load that they'll eventually get an immunity to it and especially that what we call t-cell immunity that is really important now as we're sort of learning more about the vaccine and, and how they work in us. What's your comfort level right now or your confidence level knowing what you know and the history you've had with infectious disease and viruses? Well, we're in the right spot in terms of the pandemic timeline. And one of the things that I've sort of told people is that, yes, you're going to feel tired. You're going to feel exhausted. There's that fatigue that's coming. And you're also seeing that rise in cases. And you're thinking, oh, my goodness, I've you know spent the last six months. I've sacrificed so much. And now it looks like it's even worse than it was before. And the answer is yes. That's how it normally happens. So it's even more important for us to realize that following the ABCs, protecting your airways, sticking to your bubbles, knowing who your contacts are, and also making sure that you're not doing things such as going out to big parties or anything like that. That's the most important factor right now because that is essentially how we're going to make sure that we continue to keep the numbers low and Hopefully we're going to get past this this hump with the 20 to 40s and eventually get to a point where we're back to being comfortable, where we can then start reducing the, the, the numbers and eventually get to a sort of an elimination stage by around spring or fall of next year, especially with the vaccine coming out. All right, Jason, we will leave it there. Thank you again so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Take care. Right now, though, we are going to take a look at a new research co-poll. It was conducted on behalf of the B.C. Government and Service Employees Union, the BCGEU, and finds that a good number of British Columbians do have concerns about for-profit corporations when it comes to long-term care. And of those who have opinions on the topic, many say they would actually prefer that not-for-profit operators be awarded new contracts when we're talking about the delivery of long-term care services. Well, Mario Canseco is the president of Research Co. and joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jill. Great to chat with you. Uh, so this was conducted on behalf of the BCGEU, which is a union that would like to see all of the profits taken out of this, would like it to see uh, them run by nonprofit organizations. But what did you ask people specifically about this? Well, we needed to have a question that made sense and that allows people to really uh, state how they're feeling about this issue. And we found that there's a lot of British Columbians who are following this story closely. We all uh, have a relative. We know somebody who's there. And we thought it was a good opportunity to ask about the way in which things are going as far as the debate uh, that we have ongoing between for-profit and those who uh, do it. Oh, 
we seem to have lost Mario. Look at that. His phone just dropped right out. We're going to try and get him back on the line talking about a new poll uh, that he has done, that Research Co. has done, his company has done. It was conducted on behalf of the BCGEU, taking a look at how people are feeling about long-term, long-term care facilities. So the first question put to people was, we would like to ask you some questions about long-term care homes, also known as nursing homes for the elderly, seniors care homes or residential care homes. How closely do you follow issues related to long-term care in BC? We have Mario back on the line now. Sorry about that. I don't know what happened. It happens. <laughs> so I was just reading out the first or one of the questions yeah. asked people. Um, so you, you put these specific questions to people. Yeah, what is important here is, uh, you know, you can be asked about an issue that really doesn't matter to you. And it's something that we faced many times in the heat of an electoral campaign. You know, you ask about parks and maybe you don't use them. You're asked about recreational facilities and you hate sports. We wanted to have an opportunity to look into the views of BC residents who will be voting in the election, but also those who have uh, some sort of connection to long-term care. And what is interesting here is that those who have a connection to long-term care are more likely to believe that things would go better if we moved into a mobile into a model that essentially uh, took out the for a profit sector out of it. And so, so you kind of made that basis to start off with them because you're absolutely right. I think unless you've had experience with a loved one in long-term care or you've had some experience, maybe you work in long-term care, it's, it's a type of thing. There's no reason why you would really know all of the ins and outs or maybe be that exposed to it. Well, it's definitely part of the situation uh, when we're looking into uh, the findings. And, and ultimately, what it also allows us to do is to look into the way people would feel about the evolution of, this, of the um, long-term care system in a way. And, you know, we found uh, that there's more than half of BC residents who believe that the role of the for-profit corporations in long-term care should be reduced. It climbs all, to, all, all the way to 60% among those who have an experience uh, with the long-term care sector. So it's also about figuring out how you feel about this. We've had so many discussions related to this sector, particularly because of the COVID-19 outbreak. Um, but ultimately, we're looking into big investments in this sector. And what we're hearing right now from BC residents is that they would like to see some changes here and maybe a reduction of the for-profit corporations when it comes to the delivery of long-term care. Uh, and I don't know if this poll asked people this, but was there any uh, thought given to whether it's for-profit or non-profit, uh, the government still sets the guidelines or sets the minimum standards, the basics, what, what you have to deliver as a healthcare provider uh, in that maybe the, the focus should be more on, on, on inspections and making sure that no matter where you're coming from, if you're running a long-term care facility, you need to meet these certain benchmarks. Well, we see a little bit of that. We see a high level of support from residents uh, to the issue of setting a wage standard for all long-term care homes. This is crucial because one of the problems that we had with COVID-19 is people who are working at two or three different facilities because they had to. know There's no wage standard and you maybe are making more money on a specific facility than on another one and you're switching back and forth. And that was one of the problems that we had in the early stages of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, we also see more than nine in 10 residents who say that the provincial government should monitor whether the long-term care homes are delivering the care hours that they are funded to provide. This is something that hasn't happened before. There was an independent report from the office of the BC Seniors Advocate that said that in 2017 and 2018, 
the number of hours didn't really match what was funded. So another issue where we need to be very careful and hopefully something that in the future we won't have to deal with. Were you surprised at all when you asked people, one of the questions was to respondents with a connection to long-term care. Is the long-term care home run by a public, non-profit or for-profit operator? Looking at this, it seemed to me the not sure number was quite high. It's huge. It's 27% who have no idea what is happening here. And it's also part of the difficulty in trying to uh, essentially uh, look into the types of services that are there. You know, we had 30% who are convinced that it was a public facility, 23% who said it was a nonprofit, 20% who said it was a for-profit. But you also had 27%, more than one in four, who say, I actually don't know where my relative, where my friend, where somebody I know, where, where somebody in this household works. I don't know what type of, uh, of a facility it is. So there's also some sort of confusion here, partly because of the way we relate to the healthcare system. We're always under the assumption that everything is public. Exactly, which to me, that number almost points at what we all want. And if we have loved ones in long-term care, uh, we want a, a certain level of care. We want them to be looked after. We want them to be happy. We want them uh, to not be stressed out. We want them to have good care workers that, that love them and want to look after them. And I, I, that almost to me points out that it doesn't matter if it's nonprofit, for-profit. We just want that level of health care to be maintained. Well, and it is something that I've done in the past. We have asked people about their experiences. This is obviously before COVID-19. I mean, I did conduct a couple of surveys before the COVID-19 pandemic. And and usually you get a high level of satisfaction from residents uh, to what is happening in the long-term care sector. Uh, There's always the story. There's always the moment when something goes horribly wrong. It gets reported as it should, because it's definitely some of the things that you want to hear about. Uh, but it also paints the idea that this is happening in many places. And what is quite in- interesting here is it's not a survey that shows a lot of uh, dissatisfaction with the long-term care sector. It essentially looks at things that are more likely to make it better. And what we hear from many British Columbians on this particular file is we would like the government to take better care of these facilities to ensure that if we're funding a specific number of hours, they're actually delivered. Uh, you asked people about wages as well, if they support or oppose the government setting the wage standard for all long-term care. So again, taking out, uh, doesn't matter if it's for-profit, not-profit, this is the, the minimum wage or this is the wage standard. Yes, and there's a high level of support for this. You know, I think when, when we get down to it, there's always this confusion uh, because people assume that if you work in the healthcare sector, you do very well. And, you know, we know that there are some long-term care homes that pay roughly $7 an hour less than others. And, you know, we don't have this wage standard in the same way that we have it for many other services related to healthcare. And, you know, we do see that there's 93% of those who have a connection with the service and who know what what, what they want to see happening, um, who would like to set a wage standard. So definitely something that uh, the government, whoever forms it after October 24th, of course, we're going to know until three or four weeks <laughs> afterwards, uh, we will see if they decide to essentially follow through on this. Uh, I just wanted to touch on one other question as well. Uh, you asked people, do you agree or disagree with this statement? Long-term care homes that fail to deliver the number of care hours they are funded to provide should face penalties. Uh, not a huge surprise because that seems to be a bit of an no-brainer. No, it's 86% who believe that this should be the case. Now, mind you, there are so many ways to explain why something didn't happen. Maybe you didn't have somebody who was supposed to go that day. Maybe uh, there was some sort of confusion at the facility. But there is no mechanism right now for penalties in something that is actually being funded 
to be provided to residents of this province. So, you know, we do see a high level of support for this because, you know, in any other facet of life, if you don't deliver on something, you're going to face penalties. And this is one of those instances where it's not currently happening. All right, Mario, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about the poll results. My pleasure, Jill, anytime. Well, as you've likely heard or seen, Meng Wanzhou back in court, uh, there were shots of her leaving one of her homes in Vancouver with the ankle monitoring bracelet on. Lawyers for the Huawei executive are wrapping up their arguments, arguments dealing with the admissibility of evidence in the extradition case. Well, let's bring on Richard Curland, immigration lawyer and policy analyst, to get his take on what has been unfolding in court. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. What's happening over there? Well, there's in court and out of court. In court, uh, it's same old, same old. The complaint from the defense is that uh, not all documents were provided to Canada at the time the extradition decision was taken uh, to proceed. Uh, Will it change anything? Likely not. The standard uh, is very high to shut down an extradition case based on this defense argument. But the real story is not in the court. Uh, things have happened. Uh, the Chinese government in the last few days have pulled out the mallet to hit the wallet of HSBC. In Canada, economic sanctions, those Iranian sanctions that uh, initially were the bedrock of the extradition case, no longer on the table. It's all about bank fraud, which brings us to HSBC in the United States. Uh, That's the locus for all of this. So two things have happened. The Chinese government has slammed HSBC, the company, Uh, Last week, when it has publicly floated, it's going to put that bank on China's unreliable list. What does that mean? It's a blacklist. If you do business with that company, there's going to be consequences. So HSBC shares have hit a 25-year low on release of that news. And it's Beijing's way of pressuring HSBC about this alleged bank fraud. Without HSBC's uh, comments, documents, etc., there would be no need for an extradition case, which brings us to the second thing. I followed the money. Mm. I did a little digging in the United States, and it turns out that HSBC, not only did it pay hundreds of millions of fines for violation of uh, Uh, anti-money laundering rules, bank logs, anti-terrorist legislation in the last few years. It also dispersed millions of dollars in lobbyists in Washington uh, in the months before this extradition case came about. I wonder what their money got them. So that combination of a link between HSBC, lobbyists, Washington, the creation of the extradition case in Canada, and China's new hammer on top of HSBC uh, may pressure the bank to do a business analysis whether the case is worth pursuing. It's dramatic. And if you add to that the other out-of-court issue, uh, tonight's debate uh, between President of the United States and wannabe President Joe Biden is, is going to be a game-changer for Canada. If uh, Mr. Biden prevails in the presidential contest, chances are this entire extradition case is going to get a second look with fresh eyes. Outside, 
the Trump comments in the context of a trade negotiation with China using uh, Huawei and Ms. Meng as trade pawns in a trade war. It's dramatic. So today, don't look inside that courtroom. Look what's happening outside. Uh, Want to go back. So the HSBC issue, obviously it's going to hurt the bank being put on a blacklist by the, the Chinese government. Who else is that aimed at hurting? Or, or where, how else do you see that uh, playing out? No other way. I went through the reports of, uh, from journalists that we all know in, in uh, Asia, including you know, South China, Morning Post, uh, as well as uh, mainland publications, and uh, the message is crystal clear. There's only one purpose to this uh, placement on the list. It's the Huawei extradition case. That's it. That's all. It, <laughs> it's, it's quite blunt. Uh, and uh, it's as blunt as uh, nabbing two Canadians in China, uh, again, in, uh, with the intent of causing political change in Canada or regarding the continuation of this extradition case. So China, the Chinese government, is actively, prolifically seeking ways to engage pressure points and put an end to this litigation in Canada. Do you think then people who do business with HSBC, should they be concerned or alarmed by this? Well, my top, uh, my top concern would be for any senior executive of HSBC who's physically present in Canada. Uh, sorry, in China. Uh, the, the ones in Canada have nothing to uh, fear, I suspect. And uh, if you're an HSBC customer, um, uh, it's not outside the realm of possibility. If you're a high-profile HSBC customer in China, uh, the, how does the um, Chinese uh, idiom go? Um, uh, kill a chicken to scare a monkey. So if they pick up uh, a, a high-profile HSBC customer on Chinese soil, alleging uh, that uh, when it goes formally on the reliabil- unreliability list that they violated Chinese uh, uh, issues, well, that's a signal to, to no longer deal with HSBC. Uh, that is a strategic game changer for HSBC shareholders globally. Uh, so do, do you think that, or, or how do you kind of explain how far we've come and what we're talking about today in this case, when if we go all the way back talking about, and this was mentioned inside the court today, but I get what you're saying, that it's all of these, these other things happening that are the real story. How far have we come from a case that had to do with violating U.S. sanctions against Iran? Well, the smoking gun in Canadian hands is this. Uh, there was a high-level guest uh, on, on, on news who discussed uh, the conversations during the Canada-U.S. trade negotiations for our uh, free trade agreement. And apparently, uh, the uh, green light go-ahead on this extradition was a gimme uh, to the Americans in the context of that trade negotiation. I don't think anyone drilled down and fully understood, comprehended who was the subject of arrest. Uh, it was a, a political misfire, a gross miscalculation on enforcement without uh, access to the proper policy people who understand China and how it works. This never should have happened in the first place.
You talk about the possibility in the United States after the election, if Joe Biden becomes president, this case getting a fresh set of eyes. Do you think there's also the possibility of liabilities or, or even worse, if we are now hearing about President Donald Trump's taxes, how he owes millions? I mean, could it, is it too far-fetched to say he might owe money to the Chinese government and that's going to come into play? Um, it, uh, nothing's impossible with President Trump. You can't take anything off that table. Uh, but uh, my concern now is that his team today has been floating a strong anti-China message in the event of uh, his victory. He will uh, apparently uh, perceive himself to have the green light to go at China full scale uh, in trade and everything else. So uh, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't think anyone knows how this is going to turn out. Uh, but uh, if, if during this campaign, President Trump engages in commentary regarding this extradition case, that's fuel for the defense uh, in the uh, Meng extradition. And so <laughs> I watch with wide eyes uh, daily what uh, President Trump's going to say next as it affects this case. And where are we as far as what's happening with the case in court? Like you said, that threshold of having an extradition case thrown out is extremely high. How do you see things playing out? Yeah, I, I, the, the game is afoot until uh, February 2021 and April 2021. February, uh, the court uh, will have a serious uh, review. And uh, that door is open at that time, February uh, to tossing everything based on the charter violation abuse of process argument exactly because, real simple, uh, uh, the officers at Vancouver International Tarmac were ordered by the court to immediately arrest Ms. Meng. Uh, two, three conversations ensued, the last one with American law enforcement. Uh, someone changed Canada's mind. And instead of an immediate arrest, uh, she was put into customs and immigration interrogation for hours. Uh, the subject of that interrogation gave the Americans evidence they could not otherwise get for their process. Was that an abuse of charter? It's a collision between the judiciary that ordered immediate arrest and law enforcement that said, well, we'll get around to the arrest when we feel like it. And the court may, as uh, to prevent that precedent in future, uh, determine the case in favor of Ms. Meng on the charter grounds uh, to tell law enforcement that's what happens when you ignore a direct court order. And one other, I wanted to make sure uh, to touch on the Canadians being held, Michael Spavor, Michael mm. Kovrig, uh, facing charges. Many would say that they don't buy, that those charges are legit, to, to say the least. What, what does it mean for them that we're seeing this drag on? Pain. I mean, I, I've had the opportunity, uh, the pleasure of speaking uh, with the wife of uh, one of those Michaels, who's here in Vancouver, uh, she is brave, she is strong, uh, what she endures, I can't begin to fathom. Uh, it's pain. My only consolation is I just hope that uh, both Michaels may benefit uh, from this unfortunate incarceration uh, in a financial matter, the same way our Canadian ambassador in Iran, the one who helped Americans leave Iran, by disguising themselves as Canadians, uh, that ambassador went on to uh, the talk circuit, uh, boards of directors and the like, and there was a financial a positive outcome. At a minimum, I hope the two Michaels can manage something like that. 
Well, some new concerns are being raised, and these have to do with the flu shot. And physicians in this country, those who administer the flu vaccine as part of their practice, well, 85% of the doctors questioned have indicated that the system needs to build more capacity to accommodate the increased demand for vaccinations for those flu shots this year. And about half of those questioned are saying that they will not be able to secure enough vaccine doses to meet patient demand. Well, joining me on the line is Dr. Ann Collins, president of the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. Collins, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Thank you for having me. Uh, Those sound like pretty big numbers and big concerns about the flu vaccine and access to it. How concerned are you? Well, as you've pointed out, Jill, these numbers came out of a survey that was done um, earlier late in the summer, late August. Uh, And the main intent around the survey was to sort of establish where are we now with respect to uh, uh, PPE. Uh, And so the most uh, concerning thing that came out of that survey was that over 50% of physicians felt that they still did not have um, an adequate source or supply chain of PPE were concerned that they uh, weren't, were not going to uh, reliably have PPE. And that was prior to uh, what we're seeing now as a surge or second wave in COVID cases in many parts of the country. And so that has ramifications for influenza season because typically many flu shots across this country are given by family physicians. We've been assured uh, by government and public health that there's been a, an increased number of flu doses ordered, and that so, so far the, the feeling, the thought, is that it will be available to Canadians uh, who want it. Um, but there will have to be... It, it's going to be challenging on how that flu vaccine will be delivered. Okay, and and to back up a bit then for the number, like you said, more than half, 54% of the physicians questioned uh, said that they didn't have access or or they didn't know that that they would have a a, a continued supply. Why is that, do you think, that that we're not seeing that? We haven't figured that out so far. Well, we certainly have learned many lessons as we've moved through this pandemic, and and there has been improvement. It's not all bad news. But there are other factors at play here. Um, Other businesses are open now, uh, for example, dental offices, and um, kids are back in school. There's more testing being done. Whenever there's an increase in testing, that means an increased demand or need for PPE. So there are other mitigating factors um, around um, the need for PPE. Uh, and so, and that's not just in Canada. Of course, that's worldwide. So there's an increased demand everywhere for it. So there, there are multiple reasons for this. I, I would also like to say that this is there diversity of experience across the country. Um, but we do know that there are several community-based physicians who who are having challenges in in getting PPE. Uh, do you think this might lead then to a shift? Like you said, many physicians or family physicians administer the flu vaccine uh, as part of their practice. Do we need to diversify that or make that so people are getting them, say, more at pharmacies or at, at work workplaces where people are back at work or, or getting so that there is more access in other areas? So it certainly is, is going to 
make it a requirement that there be some innovation around how flu vaccines are delivered this year, whether it's in the family doctor's, under the family doctor's care, or even with a pharmacist, um, they'll be more likely a, it'll be on an appointment basis, uh, an in and out uh, type of uh, uh, experience, uh, not necessarily walking around uh, the store. And for family doctors, um, I, you know, in my practice, I would gather, you know, 50 patients on a Friday morning and do the flu shot over a very short period of time. That can't happen now because of the requirement for physical distancing and all the sanitizing that has to happen after a single patient encounter. The whole, you know, all the surfaces need to be wiped down. So docs are looking at different ways of delivering, whether it be perhaps, I've heard some mention the idea of drive-by or drive-through flu shot uh, clinics or perhaps looking to have a, a larger space available so that more um, uh, patients can be seen other than in the confines of a small office examining room. Um, but it also speaks to the need to enhance the support of our public health units and agencies who, are, who also have uh, a key critical part to play in immunization delivery. So do you think, is the bigger concern right now the physically the physical act of giving the vaccine or being able to secure enough vaccine doses? So the first part is being able to give it because we know that there has been a 20% um, bump up in the number of flu vaccine doses ordered for this year through public health and government working together. So we've got that to start with. So now the question is getting it into people's arms, getting it, getting it out to them um, in, a, in a timely fashion. And primarily from the physician's point of view, that falls to family docs. They will be looking to do it, you know, when patients come in for any particular reason, uh, not just for necessarily a flu shot appointment. Um, but it will be challenging because, as you know, there's been an augmentation of virtual care, and so there are fewer face-to-face visits. So it's, it's going to require planning. Uh, it's going to re- require support um, and, as I said, innovative ways to do it. And do you think, too, is there a chance while people are being encouraged to get the shot if they can, much like in the beginning when masks weren't really suggested, but then we went to the place of, yes, it actually is a good way to to keep others safe. Is there a a concern that people getting a flu shot will feel like they have more protection or might take risks because they feel like they have more protection than they actually do? There has been no evidence whatsoever to support the idea that the influenza vaccine will do anything to protect you from from COVID-19. So we, we have to be clear about that messaging. The, the message about getting the flu vaccine is to protect yourself from influenza and to reduce the number of influenza cases in the community um, and, and therefore reduce that burden from influenza that could be um, shifted onto acute care situations like in hospitals. Um, and also, there's such a close connection between uh, the symptoms of COVID, influenza, and just the common cold. 
Um, we can't do anything about the common cold. We have no uh, preventive uh, strategies other than public health measures towards it or COVID-19, but we do to influenza. So that's the, the clear message there is do what you can to reduce that risk. All right, uh, Dr. Ann Collins, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Well, some new survey numbers have been released. This was a survey conducted by UBC Nursing Researchers and the BC Nurses Union. And joining us to talk about the findings is Christine Sorensen, President of the BC Nurses Union. Thank you so much for being here today. Glad to be here, Jill. Uh, let's look at some of the numbers. Uh, the the amount of nurses, the number of nurses reporting emotional exhaustion uh, is up. Not a huge surprise, given that we are dealing with a pandemic. But what do you, what is your response to the number now being 60%? Well, I think these findings show us that there's a very heavy toll that COVID-19 has taken on nurses' personal and professional lives, uh, including a fear of contracting the virus and a fear of bringing it home to their loved ones and, and out to the community. And has it changed, do you think, from where we were in March and learning about this and really not knowing what we were dealing with, and not that we have all of the answers now, but has it changed, do you think, during the past few months? Well, the interesting part about this study is we we did a study last fall, uh, not knowing there would be a pandemic, and we had the opportunity uh, to check how nurses were coping with a second study here in, uh, in June. And that really has helped us to see what was going on. So before the pandemic, nurses were being greatly impacted by the nursing shortage and were so- showing signs of burnout already due to high workloads and violence in the workplace. The pandemic has only added more stress and strain on those who are working in the healthcare system. So the results are not surprising to us. They validated what nurses have been telling us anecdotally, which was that they were really struggling uh, through the pandemic. And the pandemic continues. Have there, has there been a response then, or, or do you see anything changing? When you mentioned violence in the workplace, and certainly we've talked about that in the past, uh, the BC Nurses Union campaigns to try and raise awareness for that. And like you said, that was before we were dealing with a pandemic as well. Uh, has there been anything then brought in as far as trying to help nurses or, or even address the fact that we are seeing this increase in numbers uh, when we're talking about depression and anxiety? Well, nurses do have access to... Uh, Uh, early assistance programs, uh, so they can access some counselling, not a lot, but they can have some early early intervention. Uh, If they reach out, if they're willing to talk about this, if they're willing to uh, let their manager know that they're struggling, uh, typically nurses, though, cover these things up. We're there to provide good quality care for patients and not to burden patients with our own concerns. Uh, So we go to work focused on providing patient care, uh, unfortunately, sometimes to the detriment of ourselves. What's what's going to be really important as we look towards this newly elected government uh, is that there are investments in mental health supports for nurses and all healthcare workers moving forward. And we will be bringing the issue of workplace violence and the staffing shortage, uh, nursing shortage in this province uh, forward to a newly elected government. Um, but we are asking these same questions of the health employers. Uh, how are you supporting nurses who work for you in your healthcare facilities? How are you making sure that they have the support they need uh, to take care of themselves so that they can take care of the patients?
And when you look at the the numbers as well, the findings of nurses reporting that they are extremely concerned about taking the virus home or fearing that they'll contract the virus at work, those numbers are huge. 86% saying they're extremely concerned, 80% fearing that they will contract COVID-19. Is that because we're still dealing with PPE, you're still dealing with protocols to, to make sure that people in healthcare are protected? Yes, I think that's a big part of it. Uh, We have to remember that we hear about the hierarchy of controls, administrative controls, engineering controls, and personal protective equipment being the very last line of defense for the nurse. Uh, While we hear reports that there are large numbers of personal protective equipment um, being uh, accessed um, by the province, I think that's great. I'm really happy that everybody's working their hardest to find this personal protective equipment around the world in the time when it's in shortage and and there's a great demand. The struggle nurses have, though, is they're still continuing to have access issues. So when a nurse asks for a particular type of uh, personal protective equipment, often an N95 mask, at the point of care, their professional judgment should be listened to. Nurses should have the right to determine how to keep themselves safe. And that's the challenge nurses have been experiencing, is a real uh, difficulty with accessing personal protective equipment to keep themselves safe but also to keep others safe. They have learned how to utilize personal protective equipment through their whole career. And then suddenly things changed during the early start parts of the pandemic, which really seemed to address more about resource supply and less about the personal health and safety of the nurse. Uh, And that's why nurses are afraid, afraid of contracting COVID, afraid of taking it home to their families and to their loved ones. And at this point, do you know, or is there an increase or has there been an increase in nurses taking stress leave or leave from work? Uh, Again, anecdotally, I do hear from nurses uh, utilizing their sick time to take time off, but they're also utilizing that time because they've either been identified as a contact to somebody who has COVID, so an exposure. They have family members, children, spouses that now have to stay home and they're, they're having to stay home. Um, with them. And so it is adding more stress to nurses' uh, work-life balance. Um, What I also hear from nurses, though, is they're very committed to the surgical restart plan uh, that the government announced and making sure that people get the care they need in a timely fashion. So many people have foregone uh, vacations, uh, their vacation break time and relief time. uh, And so they are working um, really on, uh, on their last little bit of energy to try to ensure that we can meet patient care needs. Um, And so as we see less nurses in the system because they have to take time off due to illness or exposure to COVID, it creates more problems for those who are remaining in the system who need to pick up the workload in in a system that was already struggling with nursing shortage. All right, Christine, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks again so much for sharing the numbers with us. Thank you so much for your interest in the story.